Welcome to church, guys. Let me have a welcome to Paul and Isaiah. Let's also uh, welcome the Congregation Online Church. Welcome to Church Online. Good to have you guys joining us. <laughs> Wherever you're from in Edinburgh, the Lothians, around the world, great to have you joining us and great that we're here together. Today is International Sunday, as you've heard. Absolutely brilliant opportunity to celebrate the diversity in our church uh, and in the nations. Um, Let's pray and ask God as we turn to the Bible that he'll speak to us. Father, thank you so much that you're among us. Thank you, you love us. And thank you, you've got a great plan for each and every person here and those connecting with us with our online congregation. God, thank you that you're among us. Thank you, God, that you are not only omnipresent, but you delight to be present. You're, you are everywhere, God, but also you love being with us. And I'm asking just now as we turn to the Bible that you speak into our souls. Touch us so deeply, we pray. In the name of Jesus, help me to speak. Help us to hear. Amen. Honestly, one of the things that delights me most is being an international church. It just, I just feel, I love it. It's just it's such a joy that we're this multicultural church. Also on the, on the staff team, uh, we've got such a range of ethnicities as well. And actually, we have a large number of Irish people on staff. So I'm going to dedicate this first story to the Irish staff members who are with us. Okay, so the, the Chinese, the Russians, and the Irish decided to venture into space. China says, we're going to go to Pluto because it's the furthest away. The Russians said, they're going to go to Jupiter because it's the biggest. And the Irish said, they're going to go to the sun. The Chinese and the Russians felt they should warn them, listen, you'll melt if you go to the sun. And the Irish said, don't worry, we'll go at nighttime. Let's hear it for the Irish. Yay! <clears throat> Why do we do International Sunday every year on this day? And the reason we do it on this day is because this is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, it's it's every, all over the world. People today are celebrating Pentecost Sunday, which is the day they remember the first time that God poured out His Holy Spirit on the local church. Let me take you to that point. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 8. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Then suddenly the sounds, a sound like a blowing of a violent winds from heaven filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they seemed what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this, this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each of them heard them in their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? How then is each one of us hears them in our own native language? Here's the, here's the moment when the Holy Spirit comes and births the church. I just have to tell you that the Holy Spirit still comes and empowers people's life. Just in this exact same way we read about here when the Holy Spirit first came, the Holy Spirit continues to come. And today, if you've never experienced being filled with the Holy Spirit, you can have that experience because God delights in filling people with his power. And often that's accompanied by a new language, speaking in tongues coming, and also other gifts, miracles and prophetic gifts. And we believe in a God who does that today. We've seen that in our church but this was the birth of the church. And notice, when the church was born, it was born in an international way. When the church was birthed, 
The first gift signifying the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit was multiplied languages. So people were just declaring the greatness of God in languages people could understand. Also notice that it happened on a particular day. Now, why we call this Pentecost Sunday, actually for the Jews, this, that was a, an annual festival where they celebrated the first fruits of the harvest that was to come. So in Jerusalem at that time were people from all different parts of the known worlds. They'd gathered there to worship God. And then it was, that's the moment God chose to launch the church. Why? Because God's church has been destined to impact every nation of the earth. That's why it was birthed at Pentecost, and that's why it was signified by the coming of the Holy Spirit and that gift of tongues, which indicated that, hey, this is going global. This is going viral. This is going to touch every nation of earth. Now, actually, this moment in Pentecost was the fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old promise. God never forgets his promises. God has made you a promise. He will not forget it. And 2,000 years before Pentecost, God had given a promise to a man called Abraham. And this is what God had said to Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 3. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Say that with me. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Why did God give Abraham this promise? Well, let me just kind of take you into the world of Abraham. Abraham was living at a very peculiar an important point in human history. The chapters before that in Genesis, we've seen several major events happen. In chapter 7 and 8 of Genesis, there's been that global flood, a judgment from God on the earth. In chapter 10 of Genesis, we see what's called the table of the nations, where Noah's children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, start having other kids, and they basically are the beginnings of this world's population. Let me read you Genesis 10, verses 1 and 32. This is the account of the families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They were the three sons of Noah. All the nations of the earth descended from these clans after the great floods. And if you go through Genesis chapter 10, you discover that was, there was actually about 70 nations listed, clans that came from those three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that was the beginning of our world's population. In Genesis chapter 11, you discover that the nations... And the multiplicities of the people decided that instead of spreading out across the earth, they wanted to hold it together and build a tower and, and, and not, not be dispersed around the world. But their agenda was ungodly because their tower, which was actually a ziggurat, it was like a, a pyramid-type shape. It was a physical statue to paganism. They would ascend this ziggurat to worship the various gods that they believed in, the pagan gods and the pagan deities. And God was upset at their agenda. Their agenda was themselves and their agenda was to keep things together. But God instead came down and the Bible says in Genesis 11 that he confused their languages and all of a sudden languages were born on earth. He gave each of these groupings languages. And so these 70 or 72 groupings of people went out with different languages and started dispersing around planet Earth. And actually, here's, here's what scientists and anthropologists will tell you. From the Bible, we understand that Shem became the father of the Asian peoples. Ham became the father of the African peoples. And Japheth became the father of the European and the American peoples. And uh, science and anthropology will tell you a number of things which will confirm completely the Bible account. First of all, they confirm that 
looking back at the spread of the human race, it actually all came back to one singular point from which everyone spread out from. And that's exactly what the Bible says. Uh, Anthropologists and scientists will tell you that's probably right up at the top of Africa. The Bible places it a little bit north of that in in the Shinar Plain. They also tell you that um, in studying the 7,000 known languages on earth, uh, the studies have been done and they've whittled it down to discovering that there's just under a hundred root languages behind the 7,000 languages that we have on earth. And that's exactly what the Bible says, that actually there was about 70 or 72 people groups and languages given at the Tower of Babel. So exactly as the Bible says is exactly what science and anthropology has proven. So this, this is dispersing. And now it's at that point that God speaks to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. He meets this guy, Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I will bless you and make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those, uh, whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So you understand the context was that Abraham was living at a time where the earth had literally, the people were starting to spread out all around the earth. And God was saying to Abraham, I have not quit on the nations. Now, who was Abraham? Well, Abraham probably, before this point, was probably a pagan worshiper himself. He probably worshipped false gods. Furthermore, his wife, Sarah, was barren, unable to have children, and he was kind of in his 70s. They weren't really planning to build a nursery in their house. But it was then that God takes a man with a barren wife, an old guy, a man who probably didn't even know God up until that point, and he chooses a guy like that to decide to bring a blessing on the earth that will change things forever. Absolutely incredible. I just want to tell you, whoever you are, however far from God you think you are, God has not quit on you. No one is beyond the use of God. No one is, be, no one is disqualified if God has called you. God has a plan for your life, and nothing, no physical circumstance, and no past can hold you back from what God has in store for you. And we see that in Abraham. So my question is this. This, this is the promise to Abraham. When was the first time that we see this promise being fulfilled in human history? So we see God saying, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. When was the first time we actually see that happening? I'm not going to wait for your answers. I'm going to tell you the answer, but just hope you're engaging with that. So the first time was with Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. So, and I've got three points to make. First point is this, feed the world. There's a song about it as well. (laughs) Feed the world. Joseph, who was Abraham's great-grandson, age 17, had a dream. God sometimes speaks through dreams. Joseph had this dream that God was saying to him, you're going to be a ruler on earth. You're going to become a great person, and you're going to be a leader and a ruler. Now, he shared that with his brothers, and his brothers didn't take that kindly. They thought, who the heck are you? Who do you think you're better than us? And they got all jealous, and actually their jealousy led to rage and anger. And before they knew it, they'd sold their, their brother Joseph into slavery. And Joseph was now sold as a slave. He went from being a privileged young man in a wealthy family to being sold as a slave in Egypt. He worked as a slave under a man called Potiphar, and then he was falsely accused, and things went from bad to worse, and he ended up in prison. 
And then it was in prison that God gave him the ability to interpret dreams. And on two occasions, he interpreted dreams which proved to be incredibly accurate, the interpretations. And then one day it was heard that Pharaoh had had dreams and he was looking for someone who could interpret his dreams. Rumor had it that there was a young man, a Hebrew lad in prison who could interpret dreams. So Joseph was elevated from the prison to the palace, shaved off his long beard, brought before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh described to him a dream. In the dream, he saw seven fat cows, and then out of the Nile came seven skinny cows, and the seven skinny cows ate up the seven fat cows. That's a very weird dream. And so he described this to Joseph, and Joseph said, this is, this is the dream, and this is what God is saying to you that you're going to have seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt, and then following the seven years of abundance, there's going to be seven years of famine. And then he had another dream, which was saying the same thing in a different form. And Joseph described the same dream again. And Pharaoh, believing almost in faith, Pharaoh took his word for it. And he made Joseph prime minister in Egypt. So here's the kid as a 17-year-old, has a dream of becoming someone great, becoming a leader. How many, how many know God fulfills his dreams? All right? It doesn't, I don't care how far-fetched God-given dreams may seem. God has a way always of fulfilling great dreams. So Joseph became the prime minister of the world's superpower at the time, Egypt. There was no nation greater than Egypt at the time. And second to Pharaoh, Joseph was the ruler in the lands. And so Joseph with administration, he, during the seven years of, of abundance, exactly as the prophecy had said, during the seven years of abundance, collected the grain and lard in forms, huge storehouses full of food, ready in anticipation for what God had said would happen, the seven years of famine. And indeed, a seven-year famine happened. And it wasn't just over Egypt, but it was over the known worlds. It's recorded in China, people in, in, in history recording back to this date, dating back to this period, a seven-year famine. In fact, there's a, on the BBC website, there's a, an article where it says that they studied ice cores on Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, which is the mountain that supplies the river water for the Nile. Uh, they revealed that there was a, studying these ice, ice cores, they revealed that there was a seven-year or a drought period took place about 3,600 years ago, which correlates completely with the periods in which we're talking about when Joseph predicted this famine. So there was this huge famine. And the Bible says in for, Genesis 41, verse 57, all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because Joseph, uh, because the famine was so severe everywhere. Isn't that incredible? So all of a sudden, blessing comes to the nations. Like God had promised Abraham way back, Joseph's great-grandfather. I'm going to bless you, and through you, blessing is going to come to the nation. So all of a sudden, he's Joseph. And in such a practical way, blessing comes to the nations. And it first comes in a way that it's feeding the nations. In fact, Joseph, his brothers who sold him, eventually they came cowering themselves before Joseph, not first recognizing him, and then Joseph revealed who he was, and they suddenly realized, man, you were our brother, and we, we betrayed you. And this is what Joseph said to them, Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That God will take the negative circumstances in your lives he will take what the devil meant to cause harm in your life and turn it for the good, not only to your advantage, but the advantage of many people around you. Isn't God good? He redeems every situation. 
And, and, and this, this is also a picture of an ultimate deliverer. Joseph was a, a deliverer, but he's also a picture, as the whole Bible is, about the ultimate deliverer who's coming to this world. Because Jesus and Joseph, Jesus the ultimate deliverer, Jesus and Joseph have so much in common. Jesus and Joseph were both betrayed by their brothers. Jesus was betrayed by his, his brotherhood, the, the people of Israel betrayed one of their own and crucified him. Joseph was betrayed by his own brothers. Jesus and Joseph were sold for pieces of silver. Jesus and Joseph were both falsely accused. Jesus and Joseph were placed between two prisoners, one of whom was perished and one of whom was saved. Jesus and Joseph both began their ministries age 30. Jesus and Joseph were both exalted by God after a period of suffering. Jesus and Joseph both forgave the perpetrators who harmed them. And Jesus and Joseph both suffered so by which many could be saved. Joseph's suffering resulted in him being elevated and all of a sudden a nation and nations were saved during a time of famine that historically happens. Jesus' suffering on the cross 2,000 years ago, he suffered on behalf of all of us, suffering for our sin, paying the price for the crimes we'd committed, dying in our place. No one else has done that for you, but God did that for you. Jesus died for you on the cross to take away all your sin, all your shame, and on the third day he rose again. And through Jesus, you can not only be saved from famine like through Joseph, but you can be saved from eternal death. You can be saved, have eternal life. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer, and his people have always been a people that bring blessing to the nations by feeding the world. You know, when Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders, one of them came to him one day and said, Jesus, tell us, what is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus said, okay, it's love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the religious leader came back at him. And they came back with a very controversial question, and, and you can find it recorded in Luke chapter 10, verse 29. And he said, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? It doesn't sound very controversial, but at that time it was very controversial. Because among the Jewish elites, the religious elite of the Jews in Jesus' day, they discussed and debated the neighbor. Your, your neighbor couldn't mean a non-Jew. They believed when it said, who is my neighbor, that you, you love your neighbor as you love yourself, that the neighbor was your fellow Jew. It certainly wouldn't include the Samaritans or people from other countries or nations. They were their enemies. But Jesus, in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Because they would want to, okay, Jesus, tell us your take. It was a hotly debated subject. Tell us your take, Jesus. Jesus went on. Instead of giving them a straight answer, Jesus answered with a story, as he so often did. And he told what we have, famously, is the story of the Good Samaritan. And he talked about a man who was set upon by robbers between Jerusalem and Jericho, and then was abandoned and left for dead. Going along that road one day was a, was a Jewish priest, and they saw the man dying at the side of the road, and they kind of went on the other side to avoid any trouble and went on by. And then came along, came a Levi, a, a, a Jewish, one of the, the tribes that should have known better, a very spiritual tribe, and yet they passed on by the other way. And then along came a Samaritan. And when Jesus said, along came a Samaritan, when Jesus was telling that story to the Jews, there had been a gasp in the audience. They thought, not a Samaritan. It had been the most controversial thing. It led me saying, and along came a Taliban pedophile. And you'd be like, oh, not a Taliban pedophile. You think, man, you just don't say that in a story like this, Jesus. But Jesus said the most controversial things that along came a Samaritan. 
And people were so aghast that he would say a Samaritan. But the Samaritan, who's meant to be the baddie, stopped, took an interest in the guy who'd been left for dead, cleans his wounds, put him on his own donkey, took him to an inn, paid the innkeeper to make sure he was looked after for as long as it took, and made sure he was recovered. And at the end of that story, Jesus turned to the crowd and said, so who's the neighbor? It was so clever. And he, he, notice he didn't teach the Jews how to apply love your neighbor as you love yourself. He didn't teach how the Jews apply it. He showed how a Samaritan applied that same law to a Jew. It was such a clever, under the radar teaching Jesus is bringing them. And it completely blew. And they had to answer, well, I guess the one who showed love. Absolutely right. So here's the point. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, he wants you to know people. It means loving people who are not like you. It means loving people who are not like you. It's easy to love people who are like you. Same age. Young people, have you loved people who are much older than you? Old people, have you loved people who are much younger than you? It's it's easy to love people who are like you. Same culture. Dead easy. Birds of the feather flock together. But it shouldn't be in the church of Jesus Christ. In the church of Jesus Christ, you should hang with all people. You know, it's easy to love people who are of the same social class as you. You know, you're wealthy and affluent. You've got university education, and you know how to interact with people from that background. Or you're you're poor, and you're from a working class background. You've had no official education, and and you, you you kind of you call everyone else snobs. Come on. Jesus said, "Love your neighbor" means you've got to be able to, whether you're the rich or the poor, you've got to be able to interact with all people and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. So the first time we ever see this great fulfillment of Abrahamic covenant, that I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and through you all peoples of the earth will be blessed, we see it fulfilled in Joseph. And it was fulfilled in such a practical way that he fed a nation and nations when it was going through the hardest times. And the point is this, the church of Jesus Christ is to be the hands and feet of Jesus in society. We've got to love each other. We've got to love internationally, not just love people the same as us, but love people who are different to us. And that's the outworking. You know, the first ministry that was birthed in the early church, when that church was birthed at Pentecost, you know, the first ministry that was birthed, it was a distribution to the food, to the poor among them. Not the poor out in the city, but the poor in the church. It was a distribution of foods among people with different ethnicities within the church. That was the first ministry to be birthed. Before there's any mention of the title pastor, the first official title given to a leader in the church was deacon. And their role was to distribute foods to poor people from different ethnicities within the church. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Use your money, your time, your transport your connections, your wherewithal, your education to bless people who are not like you. Make your choice to get out of your comfort zone. Do not gravitate towards the mirror, people who are just like you. Gravitate towards people who are different to you. Love your neighbor as you love yourself means love people who are different to you. Say amen if you agree. So when's the next time that Abraham's covenant, this, this, this promise, this moment when through you, I'm going to bless all nations. So the first time was with Joseph. When's the second time? Mm, come on, Bible scholars. Okay, second time was with Solomon. See, centuries actually passed. 
Joseph, uh, his generation had passed. The people of Israel had now moved into their promised land. And God had raised up many kings. And this is the third king that Israel ever had, a man called Solomon, a famous king, a son of David. And Solomon, it says about Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 24, the whole world sought an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. You see, when Solomon rose to power, there was peace. The warring factions among nations ended. When Solomon came to power, there was huge prosperity, but the prosperity wasn't so the rich could get richer. It was so that everyone could benefit, and that's God's economy. Prosperity came, and the poor were elevated. You read the Proverbs. Solomon wrote half of them, and you look at his heart for the poor. People were elevated from poverty. There was prosperity in the land. Also with Solomon, it was great wisdom. Solomon is probably known as one of the wisest men on earth. And Solomon was used by God to build the house of God in Jerusalem. This central focus of worship where the people of God and from all nations they could come and worship God. But, and the Bible tells us that people traveled all around the nations to be in Jerusalem to not only hear the wisdom of Solomon that God had given him, but also to see the house of God and to worship the true God. It was a gravitational point. It was a moment where the people of God welcomed the nations to the house of God. And that's always been God's intention. Jesus, ironically, Jesus came years later, centuries after Solomon, to the temple in Jerusalem. And instead of it, unfortunately, it had kind of lost its way. And instead of it being a place where the nations could gather and find God, Jesus found it as a place where the Jews were abusing their privileged position and taking advantage racistly of other nations. And the Bible says it's the only time you record Jesus getting angry. The Bible says he saw what was going on. He went home that night. He made a whip of cords. Notice Jesus' anger wasn't lashing out. It was very controlled. He went home. He made the whip of cords. He planned his attack. He returned to the temple. And he, he, he kicked up a fuss. Man, he went bananas. He, he, he went with the whip. He, he cracked that whip. He knocked over tables. He drove people out the temple court areas. Now, just so you realize, when we're talking temple court areas, in, in Jerusalem, that, that's the kind of large plinth where you see the, the Al-Aqsar Mosque just now. It's, it's the temple, kind of the Muslim mosque, right? And that's exactly the same spot as the Jewish temple used to stand on. That huge area up there, acres and acres of land, that was the temple area. So when Jesus drove out the money changers from the temple areas, that's like acres of land. That takes a lot of energy. He was, a, he was buff. You didn't mess with Jesus. So Jesus went around, he, he kind of, he, he drove out the money changers. And why was he so angry? Well, here's why he was so angry. Because this was oppression happening in the name of religion. Stinks to God. God hates that. It should stink to you as well. People were using religion to make money. And they were using religion to oppress people and take advantage of people, using extortion. To, they, were, they were using the sacrificial system as an opportunity to sell at inflated prices doves and various animals that they had to use, had to buy from there to, to use in the temple area. Extortion was there. And it was racism. The Jews and their racism didn't really care much for the other nations. And they were using it as, basically as an opportunity to make money, make, make a swift buck in the temple courts. And it stinks. And it still stinks to God. People using religion as an opportunity for making money, as an opportunity for oppressing anyone, or as an opportunity to express racism. Because those three things are the furthest away from Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. Say amen if you agree. 
And Jesus was so incensed. And he drove out the money changers. And, and the Bible says, in Mark 11, verse 17, he says, Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. A house of prayer for all the nations. That didn't mean that it was going to be a place from which you would pray for the nations. That's not what it meant. All right, from Jerusalem, we'll pray for the nations. That's not what it meant. It meant that it would be a place where all the nations could gather and pray. That's the point. It should have been a place, the house of God should always have been a place where the people could gather and worship. The religious leaders were so angry at Jesus for taking this passionate stance and exposing their hypocrisy. They said, they asked them in John 2, what sign do you show us to prove the authority you have to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and we'll raise it up again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But the temple he has spoken of was his body. And the point is this, that when Jesus died on that cross 2,000 years ago, something happens that shifted things on earth. When he died, and the last thing he said was, it is finished, as he finished paying the price for the sin of the world. At that moment, the Bible says that the veil in the temple was torn in two, signifying that that form of worship was now over. The old covenant had ended. God had moved house. God had stepped out of the Holy of Holies, and he had moved into a new house. He, Jesus had raised up, he destroyed the old temple, metaphorically, and he raised up his own body, which is the church, the body of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? You are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. We are the temple of God. We are the people of God. We are where God dwells. In the Old Testament, he had a temple for his people. In the New Testament, he has a people for his temple. God dwells among us. In Acts chapter 2, verse 12, when that early church gathered, guess where they gathered? En masse, where the first church was birthed. It says that all the believers were meeting regularly in the temple area known as Solomon's Colonnade. That exact same area on the outskirts of the temple where Jesus had driven out the money changers, that place that had been used to oppress the other nations was now the place after the resurrection of Jesus where the early church, that international incredible gathering was birthed in Solomon's Colonnade on the Temple Mount area. And it became a house of prayer for all nations. And folks, the church of Jesus Christ spread all across the world here in Gorgie, across our other locations, church online. We are the house of God. And the house of God is for all nations, for all peoples. And it says in Isaiah chapter 2, it predicts, and this is what God said is going to happen. This is my, I, I don't care if people are talking about the decline of the church in Scotland. I don't care what they say. And I know it hasn't been going that well. But this is what God says, and that means more to me than what statistics say. So here, folks, is how it's going to go. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Now it will come about in the last days, that's now, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, who's the house of the Lord? That's the church of Jesus Christ. God dwells among us. Will be established as chief of the mountains. Biggest thing on earth before Jesus returns is going to be the church of Jesus Christ. Most influential thing on earth before Jesus returns is going to be his church. And all of it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. The hallmark of the growing church on earth will be this. It will be international. All the nations will stream to it. It will be a place where the nations are welcomed. Isn't that amazing? Our USP, USP is what, you know, in business terms, it's your unique selling point. 
our USP as a church is actually we're an international church. And I think people are looking for that. I don't think people want to just hang out in church with people who are just like them. I think people are actually actively looking for international churches where there's diversity, where there's people from different backgrounds and ethnicities, different age groups and different social classes. People are looking for that, and that's what we are. So I want to encourage you, fully commit to an international church. You know what it says in John 11, 51, this is a prophecy. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the children of God scattered the children of God, to bring them together and make them one. You know, the nations of this world, as far as God's concerned, actually really, if you're a believer, it doesn't really actually matter ultimately what nation you're from. You become one, say one. And here's the point. Your physical ethnicity is not as important as your spiritual ethnicity. Your kingdom identity is more important than your national identity. Now, I'm not saying you don't celebrate your national identity. That's what we're doing today as a church. But I'm telling you, if you prioritize your physical place of birth and the culture that comes with that over who you have become in God, then you're missing the point completely. You see, Isaiah was born in Nigeria. And he gets to wear that, all right? Now, you would never know idea where I'm born based on what I'm wearing. But we are brothers. So we were born in two different parts of the world, but actually we are citizens of exactly the same nation. Isn't that awesome? And if I was to ever prioritize my Scottishness over my relationship with Isaiah, I have missed the point completely. And if Isaiah was ever to emphasize his Nigerianness over his relationship with me, He's missed the point completely because your national identity is subservient to your supernatural identity. You have become one nation in God. Say amen. Amen. So commit to being an international church. Commit to it. Throw yourself into this church. Let it change you. Let it change you. Be in a small group with people who are different to you. Oh, my small group's full of people who are different to me. I know. You need to change. You're a mess. Get in a small group full of... No one laughed because you know... How does he know me? Yeah, you're a mess. Find a small group full of people who are different to you. Let it change your life. Make the most of this opportunity called an international church. Don't just turn up on a Sunday. Throw yourself in. Be part of a small group. Let it change your life. You know, in Destiny Church, that's how we started the first guy I started discipling, in fact, the first two guys I started discipling in our church, one was from Africa, one was from China. The first baptism we ever had in our church, way back 21 years ago, was a Moldovan girl. Um, the first wedding I did was for a Polish person. So that's, that's been our church from the get-go. And I, I, sh- I should have paid more attention to the clues. God's saying, this is how it begins. It's exactly how it's going to be. We will be, we're already a very large church but we will be a church of multiple thousands of people. God's going to raise the house of God to raise it above the, above the other mountains. Not just our church, but other churches all around the city are going to rise up real strong. And nations are going to stream to it. Thousands upon thousands of people from different ethnicities and backgrounds are going to be in our church. 
So even though, even as the little small group that was Destiny Church Edinburgh 21 years ago was a little microcosm of the fairly large church that we've become now across our locations, what we are just now is, is the tiniest microcosm. We're still a drop in the ocean compared to the thousands upon thousands who are going to be in the church in the days ahead. It's good news. So we see this promise of God to Abraham through you all nations are going to be blessed. The first time it outworked was through Joseph and, and it manifested in, hey, feed the worlds. And we've got to understand that we've got to love people practically who are different to us. Secondly, we see that promise, you're going to be blessed and through you all nations are going to be blessed. We see outworking secondly through being a house that welcomes all people. And so this is our USP. We are a house that welcomes all people. We are an international community, multi-diverse community, and we love that. And that's what we celebrate, and we ask you, throw yourself into that, church. And then finally, point number three is tell the world. This is the ultimate time when Abraham's promise was fulfilled. And Jesus, having died on the cross and risen again, appeared to his disciples, and he said to them in Acts chapter 1, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. And they did. And then he goes on and says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So the people of God, 120 of them were waiting in Jerusalem after Jesus had died and risen again. And they were waiting for the promise of the Father. They didn't really know what the Holy Spirit was going to be like when he came. They just knew they had to wait for this one called the Holy Spirit. And as they were waiting, they were united. Now, it's very different to the Tower of Babel. Remember back in the Tower of Babel, they were united, but they were united around an idolatrous, pagan, self-centered agenda. But here in Pentecost, they were united around, let's glorify God as their agenda. In, in Babel, God confused them and sent them out around the world with languages. In Pentecost, those languages came as a sign that God's power had come to impact the nations. Isn't it interesting? And there are many parallels if you put the two side by side. But they waited and the Holy Spirit came and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they started speaking in tongues. And then the Bible says in Jerusalem, as, as that phenomena happened, that huge crowds gathered, thousands gathered. And Peter, the apostle, stood up in front of the crowds. First mention of cricket in the Bible Peter stood up with the 11 and was bold. <laughs> and the crowds listened and Peter preached the message. And the Bible says that 3,000 people that day said yes to following Jesus. And those people were from all around the world. And it was the beginning. It was like a pebble hitting the water. The pebble hit the water and a ripple started. Jerusalem, impact. Judea, Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth. And so we saw the spread of the church. It started with such a dramatic way, the Holy Spirit coming, <clears throat> and then it just spread out. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5 says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, this is Jerusalem. I've set it in the center of the nations with countries all around her. How did Ezekiel know that? He was writing 600 years before Christ. How did he know that geographically Jerusalem was the center of the nations? It's interesting, isn't it? No GPS, no Google Maps, but prophetically, he said Jerusalem is the center of the nations. And it actually is. It's only one place on earth where you have a land bridge linking three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. So it's the only one place that happens, and it's in that fertile crescent 
uh, where Jerusalem is right in the center. And isn't it interesting that Jesus did something in the center of the nations for all the nations? Jesus, who is God, died on a cross in the center of the world for all the world. He paid the price for all sin, for all time, for all people in the center of the earth, for all the earth. And it was there the church was birthed, and it was from there it was to spread around all the world. Three factors had the spread, helped the spread of the church in those early days. First of all, actually, 2,000 years ago when the church was birthed, most people spoke one language, Greek. Alexander the Great had, had done this thing called Hellenization. Most people spoke Greek, so there was a common language for commerce and for people traveling. Secondly, there was roads. You've all heard all roads lead to Rome. The Romans were famous for their roads. They built an infrastructure of roads that enabled people to travel. And so travel was easy. And, sec and thirdly, there was peace. Pax Romana. There was peace in Rome because one government ruled all the nations. The Rome ruled all the world at the time. And therefore, because there was one government and one rule as domination, there was relative peace. And so people could travel with the roads. There was peace and there was a common language. And it was in that context, in the center of the earth, that this ripple happens. And the ripple goes out and starts impacting Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And in the book of Acts, which is the first part of church history, we see the church being birthed in the sacred center of the world, Jerusalem, and then it impacted as far as the secular center of the world, Rome. And it's been doing that ever since. It's just constantly going out and going out and going out. There are three factors that help us today in our spreading of the message, telling the world. Number one, our world is smaller. It's easy to travel. You instantly know in social media what's going on in another part of the world. We, if, you get a, if you get a correspondence from someone in China, you can put it into Google Translate and with one click, you instantly understand what they're saying. Our world has changed. Technology has helped us make the most of that opportunity. Secondly, people are moving from countryside to the city. All over the world, people are moving from countrysides to cities. You know, that's, that's really significant. They're doing that because of education and because of employment opportunities. In 2007, something happened on earth that's never happened before. And that was, it was a tipping point. More people lived in cities after 2007 than lived in the countryside. And up until 2007, more people had lived in the countryside than had lived in cities. But from 2007 globally, over 50% of the world's population was in cities. And it's projected to go up to 60% of the world's population being in cities by 2030. So there's this move towards cities. Now, actually, that, that helps the gospel. Because many of the unreached peoples of this earth are unreached because they're remote. And as remote peoples are moving into urban centers, where typically there are usually strong, active missions and churches, all of a sudden, unreached peoples move within the, the impact of local churches, especially in Africa, Asia, and in China. This is happening all the time. Another thing that's helping, thirdly, is that people are moving from country to country for better quality of life, maybe escaping war or persecution. Hugely important. And before you judge asylum seekers, realize that Jesus was an asylum seeker. Jesus, in his infancy, he and his family had to run for their lives, leaving uh, the, the land of Israel. And they spent a number of years in North Africa, in Egypt, where they survived away from the dangers of Herod's regime in Israel. Jesus was an asylum seeker. So I, I, don't, I don't want anyone in our churches ever saying, oh, they take our jobs. Dudes, you lost your job because you were lazy. I'm telling you, welcome to, welcome to Scotland. 
Welcome to Scotland. Uh, this is, we have one planet Earth, and the people of God, you are welcome in Scotland. So I, I, this, I hate the anti-immigrant agenda. It is so contrary to God's plan and purpose who loves all people. And the Bible is constantly t- telling people, constantly telling us that we are to welcome people from all different nationalities and ethnicities. And thank God that's, that's the kind of church we are. And you know, the, the result is this. Multitudes of people are finding Jesus. Iranians. It's one of the fastest growing churches, the Iranian church, Farsi speaking Iranians. Thousands of them have found Jesus since coming to the UK. Incredible. I've got ch- friends who lead churches all around Scotland to us who literally have baptized in the hundreds of Iranians. And that's because of this immigration situation we find ourselves in. So let me just tell you, just in closing, three opportunities I want you all to make the most of. Number one, engage with our post-Christian society. So I'm saying this particularly if you have come from another part of the world to here, which is 99% of you, okay? The three Scottish people who are here, this is not this message, one's not for you, right? (laughs) Engage our post-Christian society. According to Pew Research, over 50% of migrants in the global south, so from the global south, from the southern head, to the Northern Hemisphere are Christian. Over 50% of people traveling with migration are Christian. And here's the point. You thought you were coming here for economic or educational reasons, but God had another plan for you. God was actually sending you here as a missionary. All right? So I I know you thought, I'm here for a job. No, no, you're not. You're here as a missionary. Say after me, I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary. God has sent me here. That's when I said, say after me, just keep going until I say, stop, right? Say, say after me, I'm a missionary. God has sent me here. I am here to influence. So you might not feel like you got it all together, but I'm telling you, you've got Jesus and this country, this nation needs Jesus. And you're here to tell people about Jesus. So start thinking like a missionary. Start thinking like a missionary. You are here to bring transformation. You're like Daniel in Babylon. You're like Esther in Persia. God has placed you here to bring influence and bring transformation. Say amen if you agree. Number two, reach the nations on our doorstep church. Hugely important. International church, we've got to reach the nations on our doorstep. One of the things we've launched recently is English classes, free English classes for the international community. And we've also, we've also started Polish translation in our North Granton location. We have live translation. So even as, as we're speaking here across in our, in our North location, They've got live translation into Polish. Now listen, if you are Polish speaking and, uh, and you also speak English, you, can you help us please? Please, we're looking for more translators. Also, we want to start more translation services. We, I would love to start Farsi speaking translation in our services so we can reach the Iranians. So if you speak Farsi, let us know who you are. If you speak Mandarin, I'd love to see Mandarin speaking. A huge percentage of our world's population speak Mandarin. Wouldn't it be great to have Mandarin translation and Spanish translation in our services for huge swathes of our population who cannot engage with us yet because they don't speak the same language as us? We want to make church accessible for them. If you want to help pioneer a language group, let us know. If you have a TEFL qualification and can teach English as a foreign language, let us know. We would love you to help in our English classes. Let's reach out to the precious people on our doorstep making them welcome, telling them about Jesus. You know, Chris and Sarah, they first came to our church. They're from Poland. Sarah was a pastor's kid, and Chris wasn't a Christian. 
And they turned up in lease one day thinking we were a nightclub in our, in our, lease, in our lease church. I don't know what nightclub meets at Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. But anyway, apart from that, I can get it, right? So it didn't, we don't look like a church. They turned up thinking we were a nightclub. And, they, and Sarah gave her life back to Jesus. And Chris gave his life to Jesus. And, and so they were with us for four years. And now they've gone back and are assistant pastors in a church in Poland. Isn't that amazing? That we impacted internationals on our doorstep. And now they're impacting internationally. Love that. And then... Thirdly and finally, and you know, our, our, our vision is this, folks. We're here to see the lost one and the one winning. And today, if you are lost, we want to see you one. One in the best way, one for Jesus. You are not meant to be lost. You are meant to be found. You are meant to know God. And if you don't know God, we want to introduce you to God today. We want to see the lost one and the one winning. We want to see believers growing in their faith. We want to do this throughout Edinburgh, the Lothians, and beyond, say beyond. So we want to be, thirdly, we want to be an international church that plants internationally. We've had the privilege over the years of planting six churches from us. We've planted a church in uh, Poland, Hong Kong, uh, Nigeria, Dunfermline, kind of, <laughs> Paris, Milan, you know, okay. Dunfermline, Dunfermline's great, Dunfermline, uh, Falkirk, and Inverness, first church we planted was in Inverness. But we want to, and we're currently training up people to plant in three places. We're, we're about to plant in Ghana, say yay. Um, we're going to about to start in Ghana, and then we're, we're about to, so we're, I'm currently training two families to plant the church in Ghana, so that's very exciting. And we're planning, planting in Trondheim, Norway. I've just, just been doing training with a team from Trondheim, Norway. And we're currently, Sam and Sue are planting in Dundee just now. So we're, we're planting, constantly planting. And we want to plant, our dream is we want to plant 100 churches around the world. Love to plant churches in China. Love to plant churches in Malaysia, in Hong Kong, in Singapore. In fact, our, in fact we have planted in Hong Kong. Our Hong Kong church last week hit 43 people. Isn't that great? Now that, that, that doesn't seem dramatic, but that started from nothing. That started from nothing. A couple went from our church, and now there's 43 people in, in Hong Kong who are meeting because a couple left here to start a church. Uh, Gombe, Destiny Gombe, are, are, a couple went from here to start Destiny Church in Gombe, northeastern Nigeria, and um, they've, they're about to plant a new church now in, to Abuja. So they, isn't that great? The capital of Nigeria. So they're about to appoint a pastor of the church they've started, and they're about to start another church in Abuja. So folks, this is from our congregation. And our, my dream is that in, in our time, and during this gig, we get to plant 100 churches all over the world, and that they in turn plant granddaughter and grandson churches. So who knows, maybe we'll have seen 1,000 churches emerge by the time all that happens. I think God could do that through folks like us. So an international church planting internationally. Matthew 24 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. When will Jesus return? Well, it makes it very clear. When the message has impacted the ends of the earth. So church, here to feed the world on our doorstep, in our community, love each other practically, love your neighbor as you love yourself. We're here to welcome the world. We are a house of God for all nations. That's who we are. And we're here to tell the world. We're here to influence and impact beyond ourselves. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you. You know each and every person 
in this room and connecting online. Thank you, Jesus, for birthing an international church with us. Thank you, Lord, that your desire is that all nations are impacted by the love and goodness of God. And I pray that today, God, that we would commit ourselves afresh to not only celebrating our internationalness, but being truly international and dedicated to the purpose of God in our time. Thank you, Jesus. You took such a strong stance against racism in your day. Thank you, Jesus. You took such a strong stance against oppression. And thank you, you completely promoted that the house of God, the church, would be the house of prayer for all nations to be welcomed and to come. And so, God, we say thank you for gathering hundreds and hundreds of people in our church, God, from all different corners of the earth and around the UK. What a privilege to be an international church. And God, we commit ourselves to you as this. God, we also pray for our online congregation who are joining us today, that as they are an international congregation, that God, they would very much be part of who we are and what we're doing on the ground here in Edinburgh. Holy Spirit, just as you were poured out on Pentecost, I ask that you be poured out right now in our gathering here. And for those who are connecting online, come Holy Spirit. Right now, welcome. Maybe just, just where you're seated, just open your hands before God and just ask them to freshly fill with the Holy Spirit. If you're watching online, just open your hands before God and just ask him to fill you afresh, to touch you with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Welcome Holy Spirit. Come and fill us afresh with your power on this Pentecost Sunday. Thank you. And while we're praying, it might be today that you're here and you're connecting today and you don't yet know God. God knows you and God has a plan for you. And in this moment, I want to give you an opportunity to make a connection with God, to put your trust in Jesus that's you today and you don't yet know God but today you want to know God you want to become a follower of Jesus whether you're here in person or connecting online this moment is for you very simply I invite you to pray this prayer with me under your breath this is your moment to connect with God say dear Lord God thank you for your love for me Jesus thank you for dying for me on that cross shedding your blood so my sin could be forgiven Thank you, you rose again on the third day. Thank you, you're alive right now. Today I place my trust in you. Today I give my life to you. Jesus, come and live in my life. Forgive me for all my sins and be Lord of my life from now on. Thanks for hearing my prayer and accepting me today as your child. Lord, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer for blessing on them today. In Jesus' name.